Dr. Burgess stepped out into the cold night air, shivering as he looked around for the night watchman. Someone called out, over here. The doctor squinted through the foggy darkness to find the source of the call. Then he saw it. On the front steps of the hospital, the watchman crouched beside the body of a young woman who laid limp. Dr. Burgess hurried over to her side. The woman's tattered clothes and dirty skin indicated she was a beggar. But by the looks of her gaunt face and bony limbs, Dr. Burgess worried that she was also dangerously ill. When he asked the woman who she was, she didn't respond. Dr. Burgess looked around, hoping to spot someone hiding in the shadows who could identify the young woman. But there was no one to be found. The watchman looked at Dr. Burgess and shrugged. Begging was illegal, they both knew that. Her criminal status made it all too easy for them to let her die there. But the doctor decided to honor his Hippocratic Oath. He admitted her to the hospital, thinking a quick treatment would restore her mental facilities. She divulged her real identity and return home. But unknown to the doctor, this young woman hadn't used her real name in months, and she had no intention of ever going back home. In fact, Dr. Burgess had just admitted one of the most famous imposters of the 19th century. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This week, we'll discuss the early life of Mary Wilcox, a poor woman with a traumatic adolescence that led her down a path of dishonesty. Next week, we'll explore Mary's transformation into Princess Caribou, detailing how she used a disguise, a made-up language, and pure determination to fool an entire village. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Princess Caribou never belonged to a royal family in a faraway kingdom, but that is what she fooled an entire English town into believing. 
This 19th century imposter's real name, however, is Mary Wilcox. One day, in 1817, 26-year-old Mary showed up on a cobbler's doorstep in a state of distress. She might have been discounted as just another beggar, but her clothing appeared unusual and expensive, and her language was unlike any the cobbler had ever heard before. After being taken to the town magistrate and examined by several members of high society, one man finally professed to understand her language and her story. He claimed that Mary was Princess Caribou of the far-off land called Javusu. In reality, Mary was no more than a poor country girl who had run away from home, and this man was just as much of a fraud as she was. But Mary wasn't about to call him out on his lie. So, stunning the townspeople with her exotic charm, Mary lived out an affluent, work-free fantasy as Princess Caribou for several months. But when her former landlord read about Princess Caribou in the newspaper and recognized her as Mary, everyone discovered she was lying. Before she was Princess Caribou, Mary Wilcox was born in 1791 to a poor family in the small town of Witheridge in Devon, England. Mary was a restless child, unable to settle down in any activity. Her parents referred to this as her wild disposition, and because of it, she was never sent to school. Instead of spending her childhood receiving an education, Mary's parents put her to work, hoping the girl could earn some much-needed money for the family. As early as age eight, Mary worked for neighboring farmers, spinning wool in the winter and weeding corn in the summer. According to accounts of her childhood, Mary was competitive and passionate in her work, yet prone to restlessness. Unfortunately, this tendency would follow her throughout her early life as she was unable to settle in any one job for too long. As the years passed, Mary's restlessness never seemed to find resolution. In 1807, when Mary was 16, she found a job as a housegirl for a family in a nearby farmhouse. She stayed for two years, working hard in the fields and in the house where she looked after the children. However, Mary was hardly earning any money. When her employers refused to raise her wages, she decided to find another position. She began work at another estate in the town of Exeter, but only stayed for two months, unhappy with the new job she'd accepted. When Mary returned home to Witheridge, unemployed, with nowhere else to live, she arrived wearing a set of fine white clothing. Her mother and father demanded to know how she could afford such expensive linens. Mary insisted that she had used her earnings to buy the clothes, which she had, but her parents didn't believe her. They accused her of stealing them and took them away from her as punishment. Mary was so offended that she ran away from home. Mary's reaction to being falsely accused by her parents may have seemed extreme, but was actually quite appropriate. When Mr. and Mrs. Wilcox declared Mary guilty of a crime she didn't commit, the interpersonal bridge between parent and child was broken, perhaps irreparably. Gershon Kaufman, a doctor of clinical psychology, used the term interpersonal bridge in a paper he wrote for the Journal of Counseling Psychology in 1974. He defines the interpersonal bridge as the emotional bond that ties two individuals together 
When that bond is broken, the processes that facilitate mutual growth and understanding within the relationship are disrupted. The result of this broken bridge almost always results in one ugly feeling. Shame. Gershon says this feeling only intensifies when the shattered relationship is of central importance, like the one between a parent and child. So even though Mary wasn't guilty, the false accusation broke the bridge between her and her parents, a process that induced significant feelings of shame. This emotional burden, combined with her young age and impulsive personality, kept her from repairing her relationship with her parents. Unwilling to stay, Mary fled her childhood home. But because Mary left in a hurry, she was ill-prepared for the journey ahead of her. She set out in search of a new life with no money, no extra clothing, and no concrete destination in mind. She wandered around the country on foot for months, begging for food, change, and lodging. Some people she met along the way took pity on the young woman. Others criticized her laziness and greed, threatening to whip her. Eventually, after months living on the streets, Mary grew extremely ill. One day, on her way to London, she collapsed on the side of the road, unable to continue. Luckily, at that moment, a wagoner drove past Mary, slowing to a stop when he spotted the young woman. Worried about her, the driver and his two female passengers scooped up Mary and took her with them to London. But once they arrived, her rescuers found themselves in a precarious situation. They knew they needed to get Mary to a hospital, but they didn't want to associate themselves with the vagrant girl. So they waited until nightfall and left Mary on the stoop of St. Giles Hospital, hoping a doctor would find her and take her into his care. Sure enough, events unfolded as they'd hoped. After a night watchman alerted the hospital to the young woman's presence on the steps outside, a physician by the name of Dr. Burgess brought Mary into the facility. The doctor expected Mary's treatment to be simple. He presumed she was suffering from dehydration or malnourishment since she was evidently a beggar. But when Dr. Burgess got a closer look at his new, anonymous patient, he diagnosed Mary with brain fever, a common though serious diagnosis at the time. Unfortunately for Mary, the condition could only be treated with an extremely painful procedure that would scar her for the rest of her life. Coming up, Mary moves on from St. Giles Hospital only to return to a life of lies and short-lived stays. Hi everyone, it's Alastair, and I have some very exciting news to share. I'm hosting a new podcast original series that exposes the dark, disturbing, and deadly side of medicine. It's called Medical Murders, and I think you're really going to like it. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join me as I examine the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. On Medical Murders, we'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history. 
or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow my new series, Medical Murders, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In 1809, 18-year-old Mary Wilcox was admitted to St. Giles Hospital in London and diagnosed with severe brain fever. Scholars of the 19th century believe that brain fever could refer to inflammation in the brain and often followed periods of extreme emotional distress. At the time, one of the treatments involved a procedure called cupping. Mary's head was shaved and cut open in several spots, and a hot glass was placed over the cuts to draw out excess blood. This was expected to suppress the inflammation in her brain and alleviate the fever. The operation was performed without modern anesthesia and repeated several times. Mary was so delirious from the pain that when she woke up afterwards, she couldn't remember where she was or what had been done to her. Confused and afraid, she would run her hands along her blistered scalp and scream, begging the nurses to tell her whether or not she was dead. The staff tried to calm Mary down to no avail. Even when she did fall asleep, she'd wake after a few hours, only to panic again. Mary's stay in the hospital was excruciating. In addition to undergoing painful procedures without her consent, Mary was rarely allowed outside for fresh air. The one time she was granted permission to walk into the yard, it was on the condition that she prove herself strong enough to carry a tea kettle from one end of the hospital ward to the other. Mary gamely agreed to the terms of her temporary release and took a tea kettle off the stove. As she walked across the room, she tripped, spilling scalding hot water all over herself. After the incident, Mary was confined to her bed for an entire month. Eventually, she was well enough to leave the hospital, but she was worried about her ability to find a job. Her past as a beggar put her at a severe disadvantage. Luckily, the hospital staff, along with a local clergyman, were kind enough to ask around for her. Eventually, they set her up with a placement with a nearby family in need of a housegirl. As soon as she was released in 1810, 19-year-old Mary moved to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Matthews, where she took care of the children and cleaned the house. Mrs. Matthews, in particular, proved to be an extremely kind mistress. She and her daughter Betsy even taught Mary how to read and write. Throughout her stay at the Matthews residence, Mary rarely ever left home. So the only friend she made was the cook for the house next door. When their mistresses weren't paying attention, Mary and the cook met at the fence between the two properties. There, the cook relayed teachings about the Jewish religion, since the neighboring household practiced it. As the seasons passed, Mary grew quite interested in the Hebrew language. In 1813, after three years of secret friendship cultivated along a fence, the cook invited 21-year-old Mary to a local Jewish wedding. Mary knew that Mrs. Matthews would not approve of this outing, 
so she devised a plan that would allow her to attend. Mary asked a local shopkeeper to write a note to Mrs. Matthews. In it, she asked for Mary's presence at her son's christening, which, coincidentally, would be happening on the same day as the wedding. Because she had always liked Mary, the shopkeeper agreed. Satisfied with her scheme, Mary mailed the letter to her mistress, bringing it in from the mailbox the next day. To Mary's delight, Mrs. Matthews gave Mary permission to attend the baptism, but Mary attended the Jewish wedding as planned. Unfortunately, Mrs. Matthews grew suspicious the next morning when she asked Mary questions about the baptism ceremony and celebration. It seemed Mary didn't have her story straight. Shortly thereafter, Mrs. Matthews received confirmation from her Jewish neighbor that Mary had been at the wedding. The jig was up. Mrs. Matthews fired Mary from her job and kicked her back out onto the street. Unsure where to turn next, Mary applied for residence at the Magdalen Hospital in London. The facility was one of many Magdalen asylums which were established in England in the mid-18th century to house society's sinful women, otherwise known as reformed sex workers. But Mary didn't exactly fit the bill. She was a homeless woman in need of a place to stay, not a sex worker in need of rehabilitation. And if word got back to Mrs. Matthews, she would definitely be on the streets for good. So, to ensure she got in, Mary didn't use her real name when applying for residence. In Mary's first true attempt at fraud, she applied under the name Anne Burgess. Burgess was her mother's maiden name. Mary told the Magdalen Committee that she'd turned to sex work after a man she'd fallen for had brought her to London and abandoned her. They believed her story, and Mary was admitted in February 1813. For the next five months, 22-year-old Mary stayed at the Magdalen Hospital. Records have revealed she was well-behaved but eccentric, frequently falling into fits of depression and restlessness. The other women spent their time talking about their pasts, but Mary rarely joined in their conversations. When they asked about her work on the streets, she refused to offer any details. Eventually, the other women began to suspect that Mary was not who she said she was. Weakened by these suspicions, Mary decided it was time to go. She defended her integrity, claiming that she was not a fallen woman, but distrusted by the others, she packed up her few belongings and left. In the late summer of 1813, 22-year-old Mary found herself on the streets once again. With nowhere to turn and little chance of getting a job, she decided it was time to go home and make peace with her parents. But as a young woman, she was scared to make the long journey alone. At the time, crime was rampant throughout England, and women were often the victim of robberies, sexual assaults, and even murders. So, Mary disguised herself. She took out her earrings, cut her hair, and purchased men's clothes so she could temporarily transform herself. Then, Mary began the 200-mile journey back to her hometown. Other than the occasional question about her short height during her week-long trek, passers-by believed her ruse. When she arrived at her childhood home in Witheridge, her parents were surprised to see her, 
but welcomed her back into their home with open arms. They had heard through friends of friends that Mary had been traveling with the family as their housegirl for the past several years, and Mary let them believe that story was true. To ensure Mary pulled her weight as they gave her room and board, her father found her a job with a nearby cow tanner. Mary went along with it, and her parents were thrilled, thinking perhaps they'd be one happy family after all. But unfortunately, Mary hated the work. She was required to carry hides from the tanner's yard to his cart and felt that this kind of labor was men's work. She longed for the days at the Magdalene Hospital where she had been able to reinvent herself under a new identity and live respectably. Now back home, she was trapped under the expectations placed on her as a child. She was no longer Anne Burgess, reformed sex worker. She was Mary Wilcox, poor farmhand. After a few months in Witheridge, Mary's restless nature reared its ugly head, and she decided she couldn't work for the tanner any longer. Much to her parents' dismay, she quit her job and left home once again. Mary's restlessness may have been caused by an underlying disconnect with her true self. Psychologist Carl Jung and the many psychologists who followed in his footsteps posit that those who do not take the time to get to know themselves may feel restless, anxious, and dissatisfied. While everyone deals with anxiety on a variety of levels, it is important to try and understand its specific origins. Otherwise, you may risk spending your life afflicted by the reactions it causes within you. Restlessness is often due to a disconnect with the self. If Mary had taken the time to understand her behaviors rather than trying to run from them, she may have been able to settle down in one place. But perhaps because she never received an education and was thrust into the workforce at an early age, she never had an opportunity to discover who she truly was. As a result, Mary grew up perpetually unsure about what would truly fulfill her. She rarely understood why she didn't like her job postings. She only knew that she was unhappy. And as soon as she felt discontented at work, she quit. Unfortunately, she almost never left a job with a plan for what she was going to do next. This lack of direction was still apparent the second time she left her parents' house. She traveled eastward, hopping from one job to the next, eventually landing in Billingsgate. There, she found lodging with a fishmonger named Mrs. Hillier. One day, in 1814, Mary bought books at the local stationery shop when a handsome man walked in, immediately catching Mary's eye. He introduced himself as John Baker, and after a short conversation, he found himself very taken with Mary. But they didn't make plans before Mary left the shop, and in the weeks that followed, John returned to the stationery store daily, asking everyone where he could find her. Eventually, he discovered that Mary was living at Mrs. Hillier's, so he walked to the home and waited for her outside. As she returned home from work, she saw him calling out to her. Flattered by his dedication and attentiveness, Mary agreed to a relationship with him. John visited Mary at her lodgings when her mistress was out of the house and they often met up for dates in town. After a two-month courtship, 23-year-old Mary Wilcox abruptly left the fishmonger's house to marry John Baker. 
it was the first time she felt successful being who she really was, and she was excited to start her new life with her husband. John traveled for work, and Mary was happy to accompany him. At some point during their journey around England, Mary became pregnant. John gave her some money and sent her to London while he continued on to France for work. To support herself for the time being, Mary found a job working at a pub called the Crabtree. Patiently, she waited for her husband to return to her. But as time passed, her stomach grew larger and her hope diminished. It became clear that John was not coming back. Not much is known about Mary's husband, but John Matthew Gutch, a journalist and historian who wrote a book about Mary in 1817, explained several of the theories. In any case, it's unlikely that John Baker was the man's real name. It's also possible that the two had never actually gotten married, as there are no records to support Mary's claims. Mary may very well have gotten pregnant out of wedlock and made up both her husband's name and the story to get the job at the pub. This theory is only reinforced by the countless lies Mary continued to tell about who her child's father was. To some, he was a Frenchman and her master from Exeter. To others, he was a laborer who worked for her master. To this day, the truth about Mary's husband remains unknown. But in February 1816, when 25-year-old Mary gave birth to her son at City Road Hospital in London, she listed the baby's father as John Baker and named her son after him. After three weeks in the hospital, she returned to her room above the pub. Unfortunately, her employment with Mrs. Clark at the bar ceased, so Mary found herself without a job and unable to care for her newborn. Recognizing Mary's dire financial situation, Mrs. Clark advised Mary to give baby John to the Foundling Hospital until she could afford to properly provide for him. There, medical personnel cared for deserted children. Though she had concerns about surrendering her child to the Foundling Hospital, she knew it was the best option for little John and desperately hoped that they would admit him. To her relief, the hospital accepted her child. In July of 1816, Mary tearfully left baby John at the foundling and frantically began her search for new employment. Nothing was going to stop her from getting her son back into her arms. Coming up, a desperate Mary proves she will do anything in her power to get her baby back, even if that means lying to her new employers. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1816, 25-year-old Mary Wilcox temporarily left her son John with the Foundling Hospital for deserted children. But she had every intention of getting him back. After a short stint seeking work in London, Mary interviewed for a job as a nanny for the Starling family. When Mary arrived at their house for preliminary questions, her post-pregnancy stomach clearly indicated that she was a new mother. She knew she wouldn't have any luck getting hired if she told Mrs. Starling that she just deserted her child. So Mary did something she was starting to get quite good at. She lied. Mary said that her child had died shortly after his birth while the two were staying at her mother's house. 
Mrs. Starling believed the sad tale and immediately took the poor woman in. In the months that followed, Mrs. Starling noticed that while Mary was an excellent servant, her behavior was often quite eccentric and unusual. She later described Mary as out of her mind. And there were multiple occasions that might have justified this belief. For one, Mary told the children frightening stories about gypsies and lied to them about her past. She claimed she was born in the East Indies and that her baby had been born in Philadelphia. In addition to the tall tales she told at her new job, Mary also wrote false letters about her life to her parents. She couldn't admit to them that she was a single woman working as a nanny to save enough money to reclaim her deserted child. So instead, Mary simply told them she was traveling around the country with her husband and son. Mary's proclivity for dishonesty had clearly grown over time. According to a study performed by neuroscientists from University College London and Duke University, deceit has a snowball effect in the brain. With repetition, the brain adapts to the process of lying, continually needing more and more stimuli in order to register that what's occurring is not right or true. This process is called emotional adaptation. Tali Chirot, the leader of this study, explains this phenomenon by saying, the first time you cheat, say, on your taxes, you feel bad about it. But that's good, it curbs your dishonesty. But the next time you cheat, you've already adapted. There's less of a negative reaction to hold you back, and you might lie more. Mary started lying at a young age about her name and past, changing her surname or her hometown to ensure that she wouldn't be sent back to her parents. By the time she reached the Starlings, Mary was more experienced in the art of fabrication, telling extremely tall tales about herself for no apparent reason at all. Her brain likely no longer received the appropriate stimuli when she told simple lies, and her guilt response had all but diminished. She had adapted to bigger and bigger deceptions, so much so that it may not have even occurred to her that her made-up stories were morally reprehensible. Mary continued to confuse the starlings throughout her time with them, acting more and more bizarre each day. She even started dressing in costume to fool the children, showing up dressed like a gypsy to see if they could figure out who she really was. Mysteriously, Mary also took a day off once a week, never telling her employers where she went. On those days, Mary visited her son John at the Foundling. Though it was quality time she craved, she was also concerned for his well-being. Though the health of the children at the facility was a noted priority, abandoned babies often brought in disease. The doctors, nurses, and caretakers could only do so much when illness spread, and many children fell sick or died while in the foundling's care. Sadly, despite Mary's best efforts, John Baker became one of those children. On October 27, 1816, at only eight months old, he passed away at the hospital. Devastated, Mary returned from the foundling for the last time, and the starlings noted a change in her disposition. She became angry in a way that the family had never seen. She started fighting with the other servants and often complained about their behavior. Mary wanted the other servants gone, 
but the Starlings refused to take action despite her numerous grievances. So, Mary took matters into her own hands. In November of 1816, Mary set fire to two beds in the course of one week, hoping that another servant would be blamed for her deeds and let go. In the end, it was Mary who was dismissed. While Mrs. Starling didn't think Mary meant for the fires to grow as large as they did, she didn't think she would ever feel safe sleeping at home with Mary under the same roof. After she left the Starlings, it is unknown where Mary traveled to next. However, she must have earned some money while she was away, because in February of 1817, 25-year-old Mary returned home to Witheridge by stagecoach, a very expensive way to travel. When she arrived, Mary admitted to her parents that her baby had died and insisted on spending some time with them before she sailed from Bristol to the Indies. While the loss of a child is always an unbelievably sad affair, it was more common for poor families back then. Mary's parents had lost children too and sympathized with her situation. After 10 days at home, Mary sent her trunk ahead to Bristol. But instead of following her things, she inexplicably set out in the opposite direction, begging on the road to Plymouth, a city about 50 miles southeast of Witheridge. Not long after Mary left home, a caravan of gypsies passed her on the road. The gypsies could see that Mary was hungry and allowed her to join them for tea. Mary spent a few days with them, thoroughly intrigued by their culture. She had always been fascinated by people from distant countries or with lifestyles unlike her own, so she soaked up everything they told her. When she left the gypsies, her sights were still set on her initial destination. After her brief detour, she finally set herself in the right direction, begging her way to Bristol. In March of 1817, 26-year-old Mary arrived in Bristol, England, a large city with a port that docked ships sailing to and from other parts of the world. Mary had two goals in mind, to set herself up with lodging and to earn enough money to purchase a ticket not to the Indies, but to Philadelphia. She found a room in a boarding house owned by a woman named Mrs. Neal. Shortly after arriving at Mrs. Neal's, Mary discovered that there was a ship leaving for Philadelphia in 15 days. Unfortunately, tickets were extremely pricey. One ticket cost five pounds, which is equivalent to about 431 pounds today, or $548. Still, Mary set out to raise the money. Initially, Mary didn't have much luck begging in Bristol. But one day, she saw some French lace makers in high lace headdresses and noticed they were getting quite a bit of attention. Mary realized that the townspeople were fascinated by anything that seemed the slightest bit exotic or foreign. So, with this in mind, Mary used a black shawl as a head turban. Mary decided to add to her physical disguise by speaking in a strange language. She thought it would bring in more money. And she was right. Even still, Mary didn't raise the funds in time to board the ship. Feelings of failure quickly morphed into an urge to skip town. Restless once more, 
Mary left Bristol. Mary continued using her disguise and her fake language as she begged her way towards Gloucester, another English city about 30 miles north. Yet again, Mary found that when she acted like a foreigner, she got more attention and more money from strangers. When people asked what language she was speaking, Mary told them it was French. If she met someone who claimed to speak French, she said she was actually speaking Spanish. People were eager to try and label her, finding friends or servants to come meet Mary and determine where exactly she was from. One night, the landlady of a pub invited the mysterious beggar woman in from the cold. Soon enough, the entire pub had crowded around Mary, fascinated by her, offering to pay for her food and drink. One man, the son of a wheelwright, was so interested in Mary that he followed her out of the pub when she left, and they quickly struck up a friendship. At some point on her journey, Mary and the wheelwright's son ran into two men, one of whom claimed to speak perfect Spanish. The wheelwright's son, who had been the one to indicate that Mary was Spanish, was thrilled. He would finally be able to have a real conversation with this woman, not to mention find out how she'd come to be in England. Mary, of course, was nervous. However, it turns out that she didn't need to be. As Mary spoke her made-up language to the Spaniard, he nodded along as if he understood what she was saying. He told the other men that she came from Madrid Hill and that her mother and father were following her along the road. The wheelwright's son was delighted to learn more about his companion, and Mary was excited to learn that she could use other people's faux expertise to her advantage. Eventually, Mary grew tired of the wheelwright's son, and after convincing him to buy her a steak dinner, she managed to lose him when they left the pub. Alone, Mary made her way south to the village of Almondsbury. There, on the night of April 3rd, 1817, she knocked on the door of a cobbler. He would help her craft her infamous swindle as Princess Caribou. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Princess Caribou. We'll see how Mary got an entire town to believe she was a princess from a faraway land. For more information on Mary Wilcox, amongst the many sources we used, we found Caribou, a narrative of singular imposition by John Matthew Gutch, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artist for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a podcast studio's original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alistair Murden. Killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. 
don't forget to subscribe to my new podcast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. I'm so proud of this show and can't wait for you to check it out. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.